podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Buzz Podcast here on Anfield Index Pro. And of course, for that show, I am joined by the man who is synonymous with this show, Dave Hendrick. And we're going to talk about True Detective, the first episode of season four. Dave, how are you, my friend? I'm good, Trev. I'm good. I've been looking forward to us getting into this one. We we decided that we were going to do this episode by episode and kind of relaunch this show with the two of us doing it as, as regularly as possible and make it our own and put our own spin on it. And I, I think this is a great place for us to jump off on. Yeah, I, without revealing too much of how the sausage is made behind the scenes here, as Dave says, we are going to try and bring this show on a very regular basis. We have a very ambitious schedule that we've put ahead of us, which includes, obviously, as Dave says, taking the new season of True Detective episode by episode. So you will have six dedicated shows, uh, one for each episode. And then in the end, if we think it needs a wrap up one, we'll do one of those as well. And we are also going to take individual one off films and perhaps even certain specials like what we did in the past, where we look at the work of a given actor or a given director. So lots to come from Buzz in the future including perhaps even a shake-up in how we address the name of the podcast itself. But all that for later. Dave, let's get into this, man. There's so much mm. uh, that I want to talk to you about, but let's get initial impressions first and then just a general chit-chat over and back about were you encouraged, were you demoralized, what was your general take on episode one of season four, much anticipated uh, this new season? So... In the lead up to it, weirdly, I was kind of nervous about it because we've talked before about how season one is an absolute masterpiece. It's one of the great pieces of television and seasons two and three, while good, they're not on that level. But for me, I've always kind of felt if you take them all as individual works and don't try and connect them, because of how they're done, like it's different casts, it's different stories, it's set in different places. They're not really connected other than the name. So with this one, I was kind of thinking, I'll go in with the same mindset, but in the back of my head, I'm still thinking like season one, like that's that's what I want this to be. I want it to be on that level. And to be honest, like I loved how they went about episode one. I loved the way they structured it. I loved the pacing of it. I liked how there's a really patient nature to how the show was unfolding. And for me, that's the right way to do something like this, where it's it's a mini series. I don't want you to rush to the point where halfway through episode two or three, I'm already going to know how this show is going to turn out. Yeah. I want you to to walk me to the very end and then let me find out what's happened. That's how I want the show to be. Which was the best aspect of season one. It was mm. constant revelation, constant tension. You didn't know what the the next twist was going to be. I mean, yeah, sure, there seemed to be a story arc there, but it was always evolving. And to be fair, again, here we should just acknowledge a couple of things, because at the start here, you know, obviously 
Nick, Nick Pizzolatto is the guy who wrote that original season that I agree is my standout season of television, just single season of television. I'm not talking about people who say The Sopranos is the best show ever, or The Wire, or wherever, they, wherever you want to go with it. But for in terms of one single season of television, I would always uh, die on that particular hill to say that uh, I've never seen a thing that gripped me more over a set of episodes than that. So the bar is high. People who are, I think, unjustly mean about season two, and I didn't quite get the elevated response um, to season three. So whereas I was a little bit kinder to season two uh, than most people were, and I thought it was perfectly good, lots of good things about it. I liked some of the themes of the show. I liked how it tried to continue some of those from season one. Uh, season three was very critically acclaimed, and mm. it left me a little bit cold by comparison. But I'll tell you what, this one is setting itself up to be very much in vain of that first season. You've got sort of supernatural occulty themes going on you've got a very interesting kind of cultural zeitgeist stuff going on you've got the idea of missing people the potential for it to be very dark indeed uh, and we should acknowledge that there's now a new showrunner um isa lopez and yeah i want to get this out of the way earlier on because I, I i'm, I'm interested in your take on this a lot of the commentary I've read on this, and obviously we tried to do a little bit of research here, so we're not going in completely blind and and just waffling. Um, we're going to keep these shows a lot shorter than you and I are used to, so we want to actually have have actual information. And when I was reading it, I think it's fallen foul of the culture wars, Dave. I think it's in, in the same way as uh, our next episode. I think it has fallen foul of the culture wars. I think. People are saying, oh, what's with all the women in the cast and all female cast and, oh, my God, has it gone woke and so on and so forth. And then obviously there's pushback against that. But I'm just going to say from a purely I, I, I find all of that stuff to be so tedious, so tedious. I've no time in my life for it. I think it's deliberately stoked up nonsense. And as a result, I don't bring that to the yard uh, when I'm watching something. And I can say, honestly, none of that had any significance for me. Unlike an awful lot of stuff you watch on Netflix, I wasn't aware of being browbeaten over the head with some sort of message or some sort of agenda. Netflix are absolutely repellent for that, some of the stuff they do. You just can't watch it because you're being told to think something and believe something. And it's kind of, it's just, it's, 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 it, infantile and, and upsetting i didn't buy into any of this culture wars shit that i saw in the in the commentary on this i think it's just a bloody interesting show that happens to have these very strong female leads in it um i can i've seen people try to you, you know where i'm going with this there are yeah. people trying to say that the women are dominating and it's all just going to be a female voice and what happened to the hard bit and stuff and i said well I, I, from what i saw this is going to be pretty hard bitten. This is going to have tough themes. What was your take on that? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I definitely see the argument in, in general in the television and, and, and film sphere that sometimes, a lot of times, things have been made too woke and there's too much effort to, you know, have the equality thing. You know, like I, I, I the, the solo buzz I did, 
a week or two ago, I talked about how, you know, with something like Ghostbusters, just as, as, as an example, I didn't like the way they did the female only one, because I think that set those women up to fail. That set that movie up to fail. Yeah. This is different, though, because I almost look at it as true. True Detective is almost like the umbrella company. And underneath, we've got these four separate living beings, which are season one, season two, season three and season four. And I note as well that they've called season four Night Country. And they've never given any of the original three a, a separate title. But, you know, when I hear things like you mentioned it, like that kind of the hardened edge of season one in particular, like where's that gone? For me, one of the films I've watched in the last 20 years that most defined Hardened Edge is Monster with Charlize Theron, which is an incredible story led by female cast. And it is as gritty and as tough as it comes. And we're talking about a casting for this episode, which includes one of the greatest actors or actresses of all time in Jodie Foster, someone who has won not one, but two Academy Awards for Best Actress, somebody who is absolutely the equal of any male actor that we can put up against her. And I just I don't understand why anyone would look at Jodie Foster being cast in a show like True Detective and not be excited about what level of performance she could bring to it. Because you know the story's going to be good, because the story has been good on the previous three. And like you, I I agree. I think season two was too harshly criticised, and season three was praised a little bit too much. I think in, in part because of who was cast in them. In season two, Colin Farrell, at the time sort of in a dip in his career, has roared back to prominence. And Vince Vaughn, who I think a lot of people just kind of struggle to see as anything other than a buffoon in a comedy film. Whereas in season three, we had Mahershala Ali, who's a rising star, a very, very good actor. And the the kind of the purists, I think, would look at him as having more credibility than Farrell at that point in his career or Vince Vaughn in any kind of serious role. And yet those are the people complaining about Jodie Foster. Look at her filmography. Look at what she's done. Look at the works she has put forward. You cannot argue that she's absolutely warranting leading a show such as this. She is a phenomenal actress. I'll tell you what's stuck in people's craw is Callie Reese as her uh, sort of co-female lead in this she plays Evangeline Navarro who's a trooper uh, playing opposite um, uh, Foster's Liz Danvers who's chief of the police uh, they had previously worked together and we understand that from the story it's starting to it's piece itself out nicely and I think I think the whole thing here uh, that these people are getting their knickers in a twist and revolves around the fact that Callie Reese Navarro 
uh, calls round to her bearded uh, booty call and uh, just uh, heads off uh, in the way that all uh, male uh, actors in, in movies have in, in, in movies throughout the generations. So I think it's sticking in the craw of several people who are perhaps a little mm. bit backward in their thinking. It, it, it does come down to stuff as simple as that. Um, we are going, and I suppose we should have said this at the start, very much in the second half of the show, this is going to be a spoiler special. The whole idea here is that we take each episode and we talk about the episode, but we wanted to uh, get a general view, overview of, of what we both thought about it beforehand. And this would be a kind of time where I wouldn't mind just introducing a couple of things that I noticed. Now, I know you're going to have equivalents, so we can either take it in turns or whatever. No, no, but I want, You fire away. I, there's certainly a couple of things I wanted to throw out at you because I loved this you know that little uh, um, a epigraph at the start? Uh, it's there. It says, for we do not know what beasts the night dreams when its hours grow too long for even God to be awake. And this is before we get into any of the details of the show and the strength of that show and all the rest of it. And it turns out, right, that that is in the it's, it's attributed there on the screen to Hildred Castain. Right. And if you know that character, you'll know that that character comes from a short story by a guy called Robert Chambers uh, in a collection called The King in Yellow. And you may remember season uh, one of True Detective, the Yellow King is a hugely important part of all of that lore and mythology. I'm immediately, therefore, hooked, right? I'm loving that. And I don't know, I, I, I know you, you, not most people aren't as, as bizarrely odd as me, but I saw that quote and I said, Hildred Castain, who's that? I need to know who this is before I look at any more. Hit pause, looked it up, went, the king in yellow, oh shit, I'm in, right? I love that, immediately love that. Now it turns out that um, uh, our, our, our uh, central uh, character here, Issa Lopez, our, our, our showrunner, uh, she changed that around. It's not an actual quote from the, the original text, but I do love that we're already going there in terms of uh, acknowledging the past, acknowledging the tradition from True Detective 1. Uh, and I wonder, had, was that something that you had picked up on or paid attention to or been even vaguely interested in, or was that just my nerdiness showing itself? Do you know, it was after. It was after when I started thinking about it, and I looked it up as well. And I saw it was from The King in Yellow by, by Robert Chambers. And I thought, well, this is going to be right in Downey's ballpark, given, <laughs> given your, your, your solo adventure with, with the great stories. And I thought he might be able to spin this into a new series on the great stories as well. Um, but I, I read some interviews that Issa Lopez had given afterwards, and I noted that she did mention John Carpenter's The Thing, Stanley Kubrick's The Overlook, and Ridley Scott's Nostromo as inspiration and wanting to tap into that supernatural element that was part of season one and wanting to have links to season one. And I think with her taking on this this role, because she's, you know, most of her work prior to this has been in Mexico, so she's probably not someone that's, well known she certainly wasn't well known to me i think what she's she faced a lot of the same you know the same criticism who is she why is she taking over the show the show is going to lose 
its purpose and it, it, what it is. But because she was a fan of the show, she's going to do her utmost to honour the show. And I think having her as a fresh set of eyes, having her having watched the previous episodes from afar rather than being in the mix of them, I think it really will help. I think she'll find it easier to make the connections along the story to the previous seasons. And this is a really, really strong place to start because of, like you said, season one, how the Yellow King was was mentioned and was part was a theme in that season. You, you know, her own background is really interesting. I think you're so right, because, again, for every, uh, I suppose, small brain who immediately shouts diversity higher, um, you have to just, I guess, roll your eyes and allow it that, yes, these things can happen and have happened recently. You gave a perfectly fantastic example of that. But we just have to give this room to breathe. And I think that this opening episode is very much proven that, Whatever else you can say about Lopez, her cultural references are on point because the Salal Arctic Research Station is another reference that comes from a Jules Verne uh, novel called An Antarctic Mystery, uh, which I love right immediately because, you know, when you will we'll get into it. But when they when you're um, uh, looking at the, the opening part of the episode and the mysteries being set up and you've got these missing lads it's a bit kind of what is this sort of Marie Celeste situation going on here where could they have disappeared to and this again like I said is something that ties in straight into that Jules Verne 1897 novel uh, you mentioned The Thing uh, which is uh, I think fantastic and one of the great uh, horror movies ever and that is right there. It's a DVD lined up on the shelves in Salal when they're having mm. a look around that John Carpenter 1982 one, you know, and again, you mentioned Nostromo there as well. That'll be familiar to people. Um, other little things I really wanted to mention as well. If you recall at one stage, they were, they were having a look around and uh, I think uh, Jodie Foster's Danvers said something like it looks like they went up to take a leak and disappeared because she's having a look down and there's a snack and there's a bottle of beer. And of course, it's Lone Star beer, which was Russ Cole's little tipple of choice in season one. And that's not, again, by accident. We see a book lying around, which is Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy, who died last year. Um, one of my favourite authors of recent times. And guess what Blood Meridian's about? It's about a young man who joins a band of outlaws who go and murder Native Americans. Kind of on point, kind of on the nose. And one last one I'm going to throw at you and let you, let you get your give whatever feedback you want then. We may mention the Billie Eilish theme tune. It might require being mentioned at a later date because there's quite a lot to get into there. I went down a very interesting rabbit hole where she was talking about that and how actually the song may have inspired some details in the story, if you can believe that. But near the end of the episode where Danvers is working out what's going on, she does one of those like it's one of those um, montage shots that you see in cop shows all the time. And she's looking at all the various case photos and files. And when it pans up, we can see them in a spiral. Right. And that's a deliberate throwback to True Detective season three. Uh, and also 
in the first season where the symbol of the pedophile ring that was at the heart of that show was actually Spiral and our major bad guy has a spiral on his back. Our first victim has a spiral uh, carved into the back as well. Yeah. I love all this, Dave. These these are the kind of things that make me geek out and nerd out and think, oh, I think we're, we're on to a winner here. Yeah, I, I'm exactly the same. I, I came away from the episode thinking, like, because I, I watched, I didn't read anything beforehand. I, I didn't want to have any spoilers. I didn't want to have anyone's opinion in my head because you know how there are certain magazines where they have you know critics who will get the entire show or the first three episodes beforehand and they will write the early review and oftentimes they'll try not to spoil it obviously but oftentimes it can color your opinion going into it because you have that kind of confirmation bias if you want so I wanted to go into it completely fresh and I, I, I came away from it and I didn't find one thing that I could nitpick. There was no thread that I thought I could pull at to kind of unravel anything. And then afterwards, I did read a few of the reviews and they ranged from people saying this is going to be better than season one to others saying this is the worst thing they could have done with this uh this show, this is not in any way uh, worthy of of the True Detective banner. And I just thought it was really strange that we had such wide-ranging opinions coming from professionals on the matter. And then the more I read the, the few negative, there was far more positive, but the more I read the few negative, and as I listened to you talk, I'm convinced that they missed all of the signposting. I'm convinced that they missed all of the referencing, that they weren't paying close enough attention to what what was being presented to them, that they were looking for more from the characters. They were looking for a quicker paced story and they weren't looking for the Easter eggs, if you want, that were being left, like the, the breadcrumbs that were being left for them. And I think they're just, they're, they're actually completely lost in, in what they're talking about. Because like you said, there's there's so many like you said, the DVD of the thing just sitting on the shelf, just as that kind of nod of the cap to John Carpenter. She'd mentioned him in the interview after the show had been filmed. And if he saw the interview, heard the interview, and he was watching the show, he'll have seen another little tribute to him, his film sitting on the shelf. I just, I love things like that. I think that's, I just think there's, there's great, fun in in little bits like that and and obviously you mentioned the uh the Jules Verne novel as well I, I just think when when we allow ourselves to be more creative and more expressive and to really open up our minds and like there'll be thousands of people that won't have read that book but maybe they will go and read it now yeah I mean that was the thing I remember with, with Lost uh, I was I, I, we were watching Lost in the early days, and I think season one had everyone captured. Mm. And there was uh, there was uh, the third policeman was there as a novel. And I was going, oh yes, I'm in. You know, I remember just thinking oh, that is so cool. Uh, that is the kind of thing that 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 I really really like. And then I was like, why is that in? What are the thematic crossovers? What's going on here? And I, it goes beyond fan service here. And look, let's take 
a little bit of a, re- a rejig here. We could spend all day talking about, like you say, critics who've been influenced either by the culture wars or previously held agendas or the fact that they didn't even see half the things that were there in front of them. And we could spend ages on that, but we want to keep these shows roughly around the 45 to 50 minute mark. So we're going to do that. So I don't know what you think, but I was thinking maybe this would be a good time to go and look at the show and really get into our spoiler special and just go through it from beginning to end and the things that we liked in it. What do you reckon? Yeah, sounds good. So, I mean, the show begins with a very impressive scene where you've got the uh, lad out hunting, the native fella out hunting, uh, and he's picking his target and all of a sudden something is happening that's unnatural in nature there is a disruption a disrupt a disturbance in the force Dave, of some sort and you have that mad sequence of the the herd making their way towards the guy himself and then apparently throwing themselves off the edge so again mm. we have this there's something very wrong and we're aware of that and when we go to the salal uh, Arctic Research Center, where the guys are involved in. I pres- can only presume because at one stage, um, uh, Danvers opens up a cupboard later on, and uh, like a cupboard or a storage area, and uh, they're asking, "I wonder what are they doing?" And you, you, you see what I think are ice cores. So they're obviously mm-hmm. they're geological experts, they're biologists, they're physicists, they're all type chemists, and they're all there to uh, examine. Um, and of course they got their token mention of, of, of climate change in there as well. So that is apparently what those guys are doing. And that area, Dave, in and of itself, uh, just before we go anywhere else, I think the setting of the novel where you are aware um, as the uh, supply driver is bringing the stuff to, to the newly abandoned Salal um, uh, uh, Research Centre, that it is the third day of night. Now, that in itself is a mad concept. Yeah. I remember considering going to Alaska and teaching for a year, and then I thought, no, I don't know what I, I think I might be depressed. I don't know what I'd be able to handle that darkness all the way around. But the, the setting and the landscape is an, in and of itself going to be a massive feature and almost star of this, isn't it? It's, it's per- pervasive. It is. It is. And it's really interesting to see them doing it this way. Um, I remember many, many years ago watching Insomnia with Al Pacino, which is done in the other time frame where there's basically 24 hours of light. Yeah. And that to me, because I, like you, have had that same kind of thought about, you know, going there and just disappearing into the wilderness. And I wonder which would be tougher, the, the 24 hours of light or the 24 hours of darkness. But that's an aside. Uh, just to to read to track a little bit back when you you mentioned the the herd running off the cliff, what it struck in my mind was the field. Yeah, 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 where, yeah, yeah. Where he drives the herd off the off the cliff, and and that's just it's just these little things that kind of you know they create little things that fire in your brain when you start thinking of of other little things where that's happened, but. As you said, the 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 darkness, the 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 concept of doing it. In the darkness, the concept of taking it at this time there is really interesting and it, it's really unique as well. It gives them a very definitive edge. Like we haven't had a mainstream show. There's been films and such done, you know, set in, in that time frame. 
but nothing TV wise. So it is it does give it that unique factor as well. Yeah, we, we have this uh, immediate sense of unease that's introduced by that, you know, weird disruption in whatever's happening in happening in the natural world and then we become aware that we're set in this uh it's you know night country right as the as the subtitle suggests uh and we get to the the research center and in the middle of you know we're having this like walk through and the guys are doing their exercise or watching tv or chilling out or having some days and then one of the guys who seems to be doing some sort of a piece to camera for uh, his Instagram or whatever. He's making a sandwich and he's having a, he's a Spanish dude and he looks over and we see the back of a guy's head uh, sort of juddering and he turns yeah. around having stopped juddering and says, she's awake. Yeah. And this line comes back several times throughout the show. It's whispered on uh, Callie Reese's character's uh, uh, car radio at one point where she has to come to an emergency stop in front of something that we're going to come back to later on, the very interesting one-eyed polar bear. And I wonder, and it's worth just throwing it out there now, do you have any concept of what the hell it's it, that it's a reference to who she is or what's happening here? Because obviously the story that's behind the main story of the disappearance of the lads is this back unsolved cold case yes. of Annie who has been viciously killed in the villages outside of the town of Ennis. Um, and that- seems to be the point on which Danvers and Navarro have fallen out in the past. Yes. That case yes. is is what caused the rift and caused Navarro, who had previously worked in the same department as Danvers, to transfer out and become a trooper. So that creates a second storyline on a different timeline to follow throughout this because obviously the the main run of the show is is the disappearance then this secondary theme or storyline gets introduced and now it'll be about how they weave them together and it, it, you know are they connected is there a connection what's actually happened but i i noticed that that's the exact same thing with the the line she's awake and afterwards when i was kind of thinking back on the show that's the only thing i could assume is that it is related somehow to that that cold case that it it has to be in that way because when when navarro is driving at that point she's annoyed about something and then that happens and it she, she obviously like you said has to slam on the brakes because and then the camera turns and you you assume because of the sort of sinister whisper of that line, that that's what's caused her to break. And then the camera pans and there's a one-eyed polar bear stood in front of her. And yeah. unlike the meme, why is there a polar bear in Texas? This polar bear is perfectly at home, uh, yeah. just wandering the streets. But no, I, I, that that type of thing. And there's a couple of other little little moments, like you mentioned, you know, at the, at the very start, that sort of disturbance in the force. And when... I believe it's when the delivery guy goes to make his delivery at the research center and he's looking around for somebody. There's there's a, a movement or a notice oh, that camera Christ, hands, yeah. and it's at the end of a corridor. And it, it struck me. It was like one of the scenes where in Alien, where the alien rushes across and you don't actually catch a glimpse of it, but it's implied that it's there. Yeah. And that, I was thinking like, 
we're getting supernatural, we're getting sci-fi, we're getting, you know, all these different. And again, it, it's just implied that that's what it is, that it's this supernatural being a non-human event that's but you don't see it it just implies it and i put through that back to that disturbance for almost like that disturbance was caused by you know a, a ufo or whatever landing a spaceship landing and then everything happens after and then as as the story goes like we get more into it and there's no f- secondary mention of that But it was just something that stuck in my mind of like, that was a real alien kind of moment. And then I thought, well, there was that disturbance at the very start. Like, is that a connection here that that they're going to play on? I was wondering, too, about that. Is it going to be sci-fi? Is it going to be horror? Is it going to be supernatural? It may be a combo of all three, but I think probably definitely the latter, too. And that flitting thing, whatever it was, is very disturbing. And I don't know about you, but I, I assumed it was going to be uh, one of the lads and we were going to see that something had gone terribly wrong and the lad was in a terrible state of disrepair or something. Mm. But no, we never come back to that. And all you can think of when um, Danvers and Navarro are out there later on their own is like, there's a thing there <laughs> so be very careful but the supernatural is where we're very much leaning with this show because there are all these little throwaway digs by Jodie Foster's uh character uh about uh, to 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 um the to to her you know definitely going to be bullying up for the rest of the season uh uh Callie Reese's character and there are little throwaways about you know um Oh, is 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 your are you getting visions or you know basically mm. you know you superstitious superstitious locals uh, uh, with your with your silly supernatural concepts and she's very much going to be in that vein of. Um, you imagine she's going to be the scully uh, of this particular uh, buddy cop uh, situation because, uh, you know, there's, again, a little throwaway thing when um, the 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 young um, male uh, 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 policeman is with his partner and their kid Darwin, that's definitely going to have some significance. We'll come back to that at some point, no mm-hmm. doubt, uh, is, is after drawing a picture. And it turns out that it's a really gruesome picture of some local uh legend that uh, his grandmother is telling him that we are steeped pretty much dave in this local lore local superstition the idea of the supernatural and if we didn't really know what was going on by god by the time we get to um the uh rose agano character uh, and her little visitor. Well, we know we're absolutely in it. We're in it up to our necks in the supernatural. This is going to be part of this story. So for the hard bitten, I just like my scientific materialism types. I suppose they're not going to like that. For me, that's a big sell- selling point, to be honest with you, Dave. Oh, I'm exactly the same. I'm exactly the same. And, and when I when I looked back into um, Issa Lopez and what her background is she she's done a lot of horror she's done a lot of science fiction um she's worked closely with Guillermo del Toro in the past who's obviously the master at blending different genres and that got me quite excited about where this show can go yeah like I said I think we're already halfway there there are so many little things thrown down so many little 
uh, instead of threads to pull on in a bad way, to pull on in a good way, things that might lead us uh, in through the maze uh, in this show. I'm very, very much looking forward to it. But I want to just pull apart a few other things as we progress our way through it. It turns out, you know, like I said, that um, the lads have disappeared. Uh, this is obviously incredibly odd. We see the the canniness and the nous of Jodie Foster's detective character. She is the one who works out that it has to be X amount of time. Uh, her sidekick. And, and, and this is where I suppose some people will be st- starting to wonder, are there going to be any decent male characters in it? And I, I think it's probably a little bit unfair to say that because I think you could... You could definitely say that uh, Finn Bennett, who's the younger uh, officer, Peter Pryor, uh, is very much a, a you know a, a solid male character. Hank Pryor, his father, who was the old chief, I think he's the captain. It seems as though he's very much second in command to Danvers now. He is possibly a little bit of a laughing stock of a character. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see as we go on what it is that uh, Lopez does with the male characters that may become mm. uh, may become a, 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 a either a bone of contention or something that we will uh, have forgotten about because it's a non-issue. But it'll be interesting to keep an eye on. Um, I love. I, I will just say just on just on Hank Pryor. I, I yeah. think there is real scope for that character because John Hawks, who's the actor. Is, is outstanding. And yeah. if you haven't seen Winter's Bone, I, I highly recommend it. He is phenomenal in that. He's brilliant in the sessions. And he's got a litany of other work behind him, including Deadwood, in which he is brilliant. So he is a very, very strong actor. And I don't think he would have taken on this role if it wasn't going to be a strong, important character. So... Like you, I think I think Peter Pryor is going to be vital to the story. But I think that that the kind of the sleeping giant of the show could be Hank Pryor just because of who's playing him and his past. And I, I just don't feel like he would have taken on kind of a meh role. You know, he's, he doesn't appear to be that type of actor who just takes something for the sake of taking it. I think he'll have to have been sold on this role. I think he'll get his chance to really come to the fore. I think you're dead right, actually. And you know, just a quick glance at the at the the, the fellas' uh, uh, body of work would suggest very much that, and that's 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 exciting in and of itself. I, I, it's showing here that he may well have had a little bit of a a uh, an appearance in True Detective season three, which I'm going to have to go and look up. I didn't realize that, but I just see it here on his on his credits. Because uh, when you mentioned what he'd been in, I was thinking, wasn't he in this as well? Wasn't he in that as well? So yeah, he's, it's it's a, it's a hell of a body of work. Um, in terms of where I just wanted to drive it next, because I want to just catch as many aspects of the story as we can. Another little thing that people will have noticed on the whiteboard in the abandoned Salal uh, Center is written, we are all dead. And again, this piques your interest and your curiosity for sure. And of course, then the key thing that's found is a native woman's tongue. And we were told it's a native woman's tongue because again, Danvers, who's, you know, kind of a super detective, can see the little marks on the tongue, which are evidence that, you know, she's been um, 
I don't know. I think it was licking fishing wire or something like that to, to straighten it out or mm. for some reason. But anyway, it's, it's, it's something to do with fishing and fishing line. And it was uh, the repetitive action had worn a little groove in the tongue. And so that was how she could work out that it was not only a, a human tongue, but a native woman's tongue. Um, and that is very much going to be part. That is like, like we said, that's the secondary plot, the plot of what happened to uh, Annie Kotok or Annie K. Uh, and, and, and there are all sorts of little things thrown around there as we go through it. Uh, this is the ongoing mystery. We, 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 through, uh, Navarro, we, we are getting little pieces of information about it. And it appears to have hooked Danvers curiosity as well. Um, as the story goes on. Because there's a little link that she finds between one of the missing men mm. and the missing girl who's been gone a long time. And I wonder, is this where we're going to start opening the door into potential uh, history of that guy? Is he supposed to be the killer? What is it? What do you think was being suggested there with the fact that they both seem to have the same pink parka? Yeah. And then that, that all, also, it definitely piqued her interest and it also caused kind of a softening in her treatment of Navarro because in the first couple of interactions, she's very harsh. She's very cold with her and there's a bit more understanding and maybe, you know, a bit more of a common ground than when we come back on the pink parka. So I do think that's definitely going to be something that gets opened up a bit more, something that she works into because she was dismissive of the Annie case originally. And then all of a sudden she's back investigating it as part of this broader investigation into the, the disappearance of the six people. Did you get a bit of a, a, a rust coal echo from the exchange between Navarro and Annie's brother? Uh, Annie had been vocally opposed to the mine. She was an activist mm. uh, and she was uh basically hugely unpopular because the mine is the lifeblood of Ennis. And we should mention that Ennis is an Irish name because it's yeah. the name of a, an Irish town and it comes from the Irish language Inish, which is Ireland. Again, very interesting. Is this place a little island on its own, right? Okay. It, it, these things don't happen accidentally, you would imagine. But what did you make of that little exchange between them when uh, Navarro goes round to his house and he's saying, ah, maybe best not to open this up again. Uh, and, you know, he says to her at one stage, do you believe in God, Agent Navarro? And she says, yeah. Uh, and then he says, oh, that must be nice, you know, uh, to know that you're not alone. And she says, I oh, know we are alone. God, too. And I thought, oh, you're back into Rust cold territory. Because obviously, uh, whereas Rust was this kind of anti-natalist, it'd be better if we all just uh, walked off into our, uh, the, the night together and put an end to this human experiment. <laughs> He's a gloomy bastard. She's not quite there. And she has a, definitely some sort of a faith set up. And she has a belief in supernatural things that you would imagine would be antithetical to Rust and his belief system. But she has that darkness about her too. Yeah, she does. And like you said, like he's he's far further down that path than she is at this point. But it, it almost serves sort of as a like an origin story of like, maybe this is what happened to Rust. Maybe this is how <laughs> he ended up where he got to. Yeah. Let's let's follow her and see if she ends up in the same place, because certainly at this point, you could imagine him having been like that. 
uh, obviously, you know, decisions that were made, incidents that occurred led to him becoming the miserable so-and-so that he became. But, the, you know, the cynicism and that it had to come from somewhere. It wasn't it wasn't born out of thin air. It was it was festered and it was nurtured uh, through the circumstances of his life. And maybe something similar happens with her. And like you said, I, I did. I found that, that conversation between her and, and the brother quite interesting. It, it was, again, little crumbs that were being dropped for you to just kind of gather a bigger picture of, of what might go go where from here. And it does seem very much as if that's going to be the trend of the show to have this particular first uh, episode, at least, drops these little hints all over the place. For example, there is a, a moment where uh, Danvers steps on ice or glass. I think it's glass in the wake of the car wreck that she uh, witnesses. And it has a definite flashback and you can see a foot and it's a different foot and a different shoe and all the rest of it. And we know she has some tragedy in her past. And there's a scene where uh, she is dreaming or in her sleep and uh, she imagines, uh, well, we see a hand touching her shoulder and she mentions Holden. And we know there's some big loss in her past, um, which is going to play out as well. And like there are all these places we could go. I mean, I, I'm very aware that we can't go into er, down every rabbit hole because we want to keep these comparatively short. But it would be really silly if we didn't mention Fiona Shaw's character, Rose Agano, because she is going to be clearly at the heart of the story. We meet her early on the first time we see her and she's this kind of she looks like this she does very hard bit and very well you know she's got the she's got that sort of gruff expression and she's you know formidable looking lady and she uh she's gutting a wolf and the the, the dead wolf that she's gutting clearly it's dead comes to life it does a little bit of a shrug and makes a guttural sound and you're like oh shit what's happening here and as a result of that we understand that all is not quite normal with Rose. And then, of course, she looks up and there's this character who, when we see him first, we wonder what he is. Is he real? What's he doing there? Uh, then you notice he's not wearing any shoes uh, and he comes back later on. And this character is Travis and Travis, whoever he is, Dave, mm. is the one who leads Rose out into the snow and the bleak landscape in the middle of the night and she follows him willingly. She therefore has a clear acceptance of this as a form of reality. Uh, she tells uh, Navarro when Navarro arrives on the scene later on that it was Travis. It's pointed out to her that Travis is dead. And she says, yes, I know. So again, we're very much in, firmly in the realm of the supernatural here. Mm. And what I found, I think it was I think it was unwittingly comic was that through the medium of interpretive dance, Travis points out exactly where the lads who have gone missing are to be found. What do you think of this sequence? So my initial thought when he appears outside her house as she looks out the window is he looks ragged. He looks a bit like something's after happening to him. Yeah. I was like, is he the one? Has he killed these people? That was my first instant thought. And then my thought was, he's outside and he's not wearing a coat. And that's, of course, a very Irish thing of, jeez, you'd want to pull away from that. <laughs> and then I thought, well, maybe he's just a bit tougher than us. You know, we're, you know, we're good in the rain, but the cold now will get to us. We'd be fine in the rain, but the cold now doesn't deal well. 
So she follows him. And again, I can't get around the fact that he's not wearing a coat. (laughs) And then, like you said, Danvers goes out and meets her. And she said, how did you find them? Travis showed me. I thought, okay, so that's Travis then. Now, did Travis kill them? Is is that what's happened here? Was Travis going to her looking for help? And I note that he's not here now. Has she hidden him somewhere? Because there's been, you know, there's a bit of time between when she fought, when he brings her out. She obviously has to go back, make a phone call, go back out. They have to get out there. I'm thinking, has she hidden him somewhere? And then Danvers says, Travis is dead. And I think, oh, so she's just a loon. Because you can tell she's quite batty. And then she says, no, I know. So you're like, okay, so she knows he's dead. Yet she accepted this vision, which, like you said, plays into the supernatural, plays in with the the team of the the native people, how they believe that the you know the spirit of their family and their ancestors and whatever that you can you can make contact with them. And I'm really curious to know more about Travis. I I want to know how did Travis die? Because clearly wasn't an old man, so it wasn't likely natural causes. So how is he fan? So how how does he factor in here? What's his backstory? And what's obviously the connection to Rose? Is it it her ex-husband? Is it her son? What is it? Like, who is Travis going to be? That's something I'm really looking forward to finding out more about as well. Oh, and and the thing that Travis reveals to Rose and therefore to everybody who's arrived on the scene uh, by the end of, of this show is this horrific tableau of genuinely terrified looking shoulders and heads Mm. only that who we can only assume are the lads they are clearly buried up as far as their chests and shoulders in the ice and they look as though they died in incredible fear Mm. and you know again that's a lovely throwback all the way back to season one and the kind of body horror stuff that you saw it's not quite as ritualistic. It doesn't have those kind of overly occult no, uh, notions to it. This is more supernatural. This is more John Carpenter horror s- story. This is where this episode and this season seems to be going. A whiff of the supernatural, a whiff of the unearthly, a whiff of horror and body horror and stuff like that. And I'll tell you what, man, I'm all in. Yeah, me too. Me too. And and I I love the way, like I said earlier, I love the pacing. I love the patient approach. I don't need to know who everyone is immediately. I don't need to know why they are the way they are. I trust that Issa Lopez, that the director, that the, 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 the actors, that they will tell me, that they will give me this information as and when I need it. See, I take TV as a need to know basis. You will tell me what I need to know. As I need to know it, you're not going to try and, you know, overstimulate me with too much information at once to the point where I'm not going to be able to follow because I'm a bit of a simple man. So I want <laughs> I want you to spoon feed it to me as and when I need it. And I thought they did a masterful job at that. I thought the pacing of the show was perfect. I know everything that I need to know at this point in the show. I know. And now we get to five more episodes for them to to unfold the story 
And we will be with you for each of those episodes in our new venture here on Buzz, trying to follow this season with you and hopefully you can enjoy it along with us. Please feel free to engage with myself and Dave on the Twitters. We'll get on to you on our second episode about contact details and stuff like that. And you can always feel free to just contact the channel anyway from which the episodes will be tweeted and we'll engage with you if we can. But we're left with all these fantastic questions at the end of season four, episode one. I mean, why does Jodie Foster's character not like the Beatles? Uh, who is who, who is Annie Kay? Who is the she and she's awake? Uh, who's Kate McKittrick? Will Kavik ever get his SpongeBob uh, toothbrush back? All of these important questions and more to the point, who the hell is Travis and where did he learn how to dance? We'll be back with you to discuss episode two on Buzz very soon. Sports Social Podcast Network. <laughs> 